I am thankful that Brother Lauren has already read this chapter, and we'll not read it in its entirety because that is done. But I was just thinking this morning as I was sitting in my office about the subject of vows. Now, this chapter, what mutilation of this chapter has taken place in the past when particularly preachers will use it as a whip and a beating post? Now, that's not why God gave it. Now, let me say this. Be careful of what you promise. We have instructions about that in the scriptures. Be careful what you promise. We are going through the book of Judges now, and one of the judges made a vow that he would offer up. He promised he would offer up in sacrifice the first thing that came out of his home if he could win. And the first thing that came out of his home was his daughter. Before we get too far here, would you turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5? The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Here we have some instructions about this very subject. And the book of Numbers chapter 30 is not about so much physical vows. We're going to look at this chapter from a spiritual place, and we are thankful that our father and our husband will disannul disannul a vow that we made. We're thankful that he interrupts, he gets involved, and disallows, disannuls, or annuls that vow. But here in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. And be more ready to hear than give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and the fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. Now notice verse 4. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better it is that thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and not pay. So we are encouraged in the scriptures to keep our promises. But you know what? Almost all of them, in some way, over time, are broken. So he's encouraging us here, just sometimes it's better to keep our mouth shut. Well, let's look at this passage of Scripture, and we find that there are several actors in this passage of Scripture. We have a man. Did you notice what it said there in the book of Numbers chapter one or chapter 30? Numbers chapter 30 and verse 1. It says these words. The Lord, Moses spake unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. And verse 2, If a man vow a vow. Now, did you know God only deals with two men in the Scriptures? He dealt with Adam, and he dealt with a second Adam. And all the way that he can only deal with us is through an emissary, an ambassador, someone to stand up for us. 
And that's what Jesus Christ does for his church. He stands up. He is our advocate. He's the one that pleads on our behalf, if you please. So God only dealt with Adam, and he's dealt with a second Adam. And we look here, as, as we see this, if a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. And truly we find that uh, the Lord Jesus did exactly. He promised, he vowed, he said, I will. He made a covenant of grace, and that will be carried out explicitly, and he's carrying it out to this very day. Well, as we look at this, in the case of a man making a vow, that vow must be kept and can never under any circumstances be broken. When we look at Adam in the Garden of Eden, it doesn't come out and say, but I can almost see him when God shared with him of all the trees of the garden you shall eat but one, he made some mental consent to that. <laughs> he didn't argue with God over it. Now we find a little later there's an argument that came up, but there seems to be some mental consent to the fact that there is a tree in this garden that I'm not supposed to eat of. And then we find out that Adam went ahead and ate of that fruit. And you know what we find with regard to that? That Adam did something that was so serious. It says he performed, number one, he performed, uh, uh, he intentionally was causing his own death. He performed genocide, the deliberate killing of a large number of people for a particular notion or ethnic group. He sent us all into sin, the whole family of Adam, and he performed infanticide. He killed us in our childhood, in our infancy. We find out in sin did my mother conceive me. He killed us in our absolute infancy, and then he killed himself. He murdered himself. And all of this by knowing what he was doing. He was not an ignoramus. He knew exactly what he was doing. And we find out he made a covenant with death. And you know, as we find out, he made a covenant. And that covenant is irrevocable. There is not one of us that can get ourselves out of that problem. There's none of us that can get ourselves out of the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Death is all ahead of us. You know, if there's any proof of the fall, it's in cemeteries. If the fall happened as it did happen, and God promised as a result of the fall death... We have it all around us. We've had it behind us, all of the generations behind us. We have it in our generation, and we will have it in the generations to follow until God has saved the last lost sheep, and then death is over for the saints, and death just begins for those who are placed in hell. Now, when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that he's called the second Adam, and he also made a promise. The next representative of a great number of people, and he was not a representative of everybody in the world as Adam was. Adam represented the entire human race from beginning to end. He has relationship 
DNA could be traced right back to him. We could go to him and say, here's what has began, and we were in him. He represented us. He was the federal head, and he stood in our place there. And, you know, if God had chosen you or me to be the federal head, what would we have done? Exactly the same thing. God had determined it. God had purposed it. God had a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He had a book with all the names of those that he would save out of Adam's race, already written down, a covenant of grace and agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on how he was going to save all of Adam's fallen race that he had chosen has already been put in order and in place, and it will be followed out to the very nth degree. So he has a covenant. This one was and then shall know as the word, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and hallelujah, the word was God. From everlasting to everlasting. I told, was told one time the only way that we can get a clear view of eternity, remember the old uh, post toasties boxes that had a picture on the front and then there was the picture and the picture and picture and picture and picture. just went back you can't get to the end of it well that's the way eternity is there's no end no end no beginning and no end and that's how long this covenant is this vow that God promised that his son would bear the iniquities of his people on the cross and be in full payment now when we look at the, that chapter of vows, we notice that, the, there, that the, there's some participants. We have women involved. Now, when it says the men in verse 2, that's it. That's all there is about men. It says, if a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Now we go on and we have several different scenarios with women, with young women, older women. And you know what he's given us a type of? He's given us a picture of the church. He's given us a picture of a relationship because he brings up husbands and he brings up fathers, or should I say he brings up fathers and he brings up husbands. Now, we have this said that if a daughter make a vow, a promise, now it doesn't tell us what it is, but it's serious enough that the scriptures tell us when it is broken, the Lord shall forgive her. That's pretty serious. When this vow is in, someone goes and says, it is null and void, I nullify it. The father overhears it. Now, if nobody does anything, it will stand. If God does not give in, involved with us, the vow that we made in Adam will stand. There will be nobody to break it. We can't break it. Our parents can't break it. The preacher can't break it. I bought a Bible over at the St. Vinnie's, and you know I'm going to have to put some paper over some of the pages if I ever give it away because right in there it gives you a long list of how to come to Jesus and then sign your name right inside of that Bible. That is terrible. 
There's no truth in it. There is nothing in that that is true. It's the contrivance of natural man. And if God leaves us in that condition, we will leave this life in that condition. But if the daughter makes a promise and her dad overhears it and he says, you know, there's only one thing I can do to deliver my daughter from the problem that she's going to get in by having this vow, this promise. I must get involved in it. I have heard it and I don't like it and I need to revoke it. I need to take away the obligation. You know, as we look at this, the woman herself could not disavow it. The woman herself could not get out of the obligation of it. But dad can. The father can. And whether she likes it or not, he is going to take a stand. You know, so often we hear the gospel in our natural estate and we say, my goodness, that's just too bloody a religion. My goodness, I don't want that. My goodness, that's different than what I've always been taught. My goodness, my church doesn't agree with that. But thank God Almighty that he says, you know, that vow is going to be disannulled. And after it is disannulled, and after we're set free from that vow, we say, thank you, Lord, because I didn't realize the consequences, the total consequences of that vow that Adam made on my behalf. That is a vow with death. That is, well... Turn with me, if you would, is it to, to the book of, uh, let me find that. It's the book of Isaiah, chapter 28. The book of Isaiah, chapter 28. In Isaiah, chapter eight, 28, this subject is brought up. Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 18. Now, we're thankful at the moment we say... He's going against my will. Hallelujah. <laughs> my goodness, our will will take us down to the pit. Our will is worthless. Our will is nothing. We need a God that has a will and he will carry that will out. We need a God that will get involved with our foolishness, get involved with our sinfulness, get involved and disannul that vow. Here it says, your covenant with death shall be disannulled no better words no greater words nor more pleasant words could be heard by the church than to hear that god almighty in christ jesus would disannul our covenant our vow of death we have it hanging over us but god gets involved this is my child. I am the father. I have heard this vow and it is a bad vow. I will get involved. I don't care if she gets upset for a little bit because after I get involved and I disannul that vow and they come to their own senses about this as the man that left his father and went off and lived among the pigs when he came to his mind, the right mind, he in wanted with great gusto to go home and be with his father and in fact said my father's servants are better off than I am I will not go be a son I'll be a servant I'll just be a servant and you know what when the father saw him 
Oh, the robe, the ring, the fatted calf, my son, which was dead, is now alive. Well, when we come to our senses, when God gives us good sense about the gospel, we rejoice that he came and disannulled our vow, disannulled the vow of death that we had. Now, the next scenario that we have in there is a man, a, man, a husband, and his wife. Now, God is the father of all his children, but he's also the husband of, his, of the church. We are the bride. He's the groom. We're, he's in charge. And you know, the wife has made this comment. She's made a vow, a promise of some kind. And the husband, if he hears it and doesn't do anything, you know what? That vow stands and she must, she's under contract if you please to be obedient to it but if the husband hears that vow and he says oh my goodness she doesn't know what she's done she doesn't know what she said she doesn't know the implications she doesn't know the complications of the vow that she's made and it doesn't even draw it out but he is so concerned about his wife that he gets involved and he stops it and says I disannul that and you know what the Lord said I'll forgive her on the basis of someone else getting involved the husband getting involved here. It is so important. It's so valuable that God Almighty get involved with us. We made a covenant with death. We made a promise in Adam. We had, I don't know what kind of, you know, I've thought a lot about this, but I just can't get into it. What was Adam like before the fall? Because he was not perfect. If he'd have been perfect, he wouldn't have done that. I, God gave him the opportunity and the only man that has ever walked the face of this earth that had a free will. Now we don't. Our will is complicated by the fall. But he had the ability. And yet God had already purposed some things. One of the old theologians says, Oh, blessed fall. As a result of it, we know about grace. As a result of it, we know about a God that has loved us with an everlasting love. We have a God that has purpose to save a people and deliver them from sin and the consequences of it. We have a God that has a purpose in mind for everyone. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling and he's going to carry that out. But here we find that that husband overhears that vow of his wife and says, uh-oh, this will be and it must be disannulled. We cannot go on. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Job. The book of Job chapter 33. The book of Job chapter 33. Job chapter 33. And there in verse 22. 
Job chapter 33, verse 22. Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave, and his life to the destroyers. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him, and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He will pray unto God. He will be favorable unto him. He shall see his face with joy, for he shall render unto man his righteousness. What a statement is Job able to bring under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I have found a ransom. This, what's it say there? Uh, Deliver him from going down to the pit. Verse 24, I have found a ransom. And so the husband steps in and says, no, 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 we're going to break that covenant. We're going to break that vow. We're not going to have it fulfilled. We're going to get involved in here. Someone needs to get involved that knows something about the consequences of that vow. And so God the Father, the husband of the church, gets involved and delivers us from the vows that we made in our foolishness, in our unlearned state, in our fallen state. If you'll turn with me over to the book of... uh, We come to another group here. It tells us there in the book of uh, Numbers chapter 30... There comes to a group and it's mentioned there's two in one verse. We have widows and we have the divorced lady. You know, in the book of Romans, would you turn there with me? Romans chapter 7. It brings up widows. Romans chapter 7. Now this is an interesting passage of scripture. Now, if you continue as a widow, you will bear your own vow. That's what it said. Widows shall bear their own vow. They shall keep their own vow. Well, I think it's interesting when we turn to the book of Romans, we find out that Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to bring up a woman whose husband has died. Is that a widow? Yeah. And what does it say here? Now, if this widow, this woman whose husband has died, continues on in her widowhood. Now, I'm not trying to imply anything physical. You know, that decision is your decision. If your husband dies, it's your business what you do. If you want to stay in an unmarried state, hallelujah. If you want to get married again, hallelujah. (laughs) I'm not going to go there. You know, my wife's grandmother, Harding, was asked one time, if Grandpa dies, will you ever remarry? And she says, oh, no, no, no. Oh, you love him so much. Oh. (laughs) Well, why wouldn't you remarry? Well, number one, I could never find another man with his good qualities. And Lord only knows I don't want another man with his bad ones. So... She had the right not to marry. But in this passage of Scripture, if a widow in a spiritual context continues as a widow, it means, as we read here in the book of Romans, 
that she got herself by herself, in herself, out from under something. The law, she got religious, she joined a church, she's doing something religious, she's made a decision, and she's no longer under her own thinking, married to Adam. She's got herself out of that relationship. You know, by nature, we're under Adam. We need somebody else. So she figures that she's got herself out of that condition. Well, listen to what we have here in the book of Romans chapter, uh, chapter 7 and verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as she liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. Now look at the next one. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another. Don't stay in your unmarried state, because, and God will not allow us. The only people that will pretend to stay in an unmarried state in that condition will be those who are self-righteous and don't need to have this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, Become dead to the law by the body of Christ that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. Who are we married to? We're married to Christ. He's the one that got involved with us in our widowhood, if you please. Now, if we're going to remain that way, if we're just going to remain religious, if we're just going to remain uh, self-righteous, if we're just going to remain attached to a church, we don't want anything else, then the vow will stand. But if he becomes involved in our state and he comes to us and woos us as he does by the Holy Spirit and we're brought to Christ, then you know what? We are married to another. And this is what he said, even to him that is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, the next lady in that passage of Scripture is the divorced lady. You know, in the Old Testament, there is more said, more said about immorality when it comes to spiritual things than it ever says about physical things. Now, physical immorality is wrong. I'll just say that right here. It is wrong. But God spoke about Israel being immoral, committing adultery as a nation far more than we find out that he said anything else to anybody else. The law said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But he mentions concerning Israel in their natural state that they have committed adultery. They have left me. They've gone after another. And they are like those who would build a cistern that could hold no water and refuse me the water of life. He uses that. So a person that is divorced in a spiritual context will stand on their own vow. If they will not, and we cannot by nature, will not submit to the 
through the uh, gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand on our own. We will face the fullness of our vow. But thanks be unto God that he gets involved to those that were committing great heinous crimes of spiritual adultery, falling after this God or that God, church, whatever it was, falling after them, and then by the grace of God, he brings us the gospel, and we're brought out of that, and we see the nonsense of it by the grace of God. He says, now I am yours, and you are mine. I have given you a new heart, wherewith you shall love me, and we do. Well, God wrote about a bill of divorcement. In the, going back to the book of Numbers, chapter 30. Verse 10. And if she vowed her of her, excuse me, and if she vowed in her husband's house or bound her soul by a bond with an oath and her husband hear it and held his peace at her and disallowed her not, then all her vows shall stand and every bond wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. You know, the Lord said this, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and whom I will, I'll harden. But if her husband hath utterly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatsoever proceedeth out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning the bond of her soul shall not stand. Her husband hath made them void and the Lord shall forgive her every vow and every binding oath to afflict the soul. Her husband may establish it or her husband may make it void. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. On whom I will, I will harden. It is my choice. If her husband altogether hold his peace at her, of her from the day to day, even he established her vows, or all her bonds which are upon her. He confirmeth them, because he held his peace at her in the day that he heard them. But if he shall anyways make them void after that he hath heard them, then he shall bear her iniquity. You know, that just reminds me of a passage over in the book of Isaiah. So would you join me over there? The book of Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, we have this glorious chapter. I used to think it was one of the few gospel chapters of the Old Testament, but I found out it is just one with all the rest. It is clear here, though, what we read. In Isaiah chapter 53, it is so clear. It is so descriptive of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. You know, it was this passage of Scripture that our friend, our brother, an Ethiopian eunuch, we don't even know his name, was going over, reading, when God sent him a preacher, someone who knew something about the gospel. 
And that man was reading the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. And that man, Philip, said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I understand except some man teach me? And beginning at the same place, he preached unto him Jesus. Now, the Lord saved that man. That man went back to Ethiopia. You know what he did on his travels as he went back? He went on his way rejoicing. Even though he was going back to a pagan land, probably didn't have much gospel there because he didn't hear anything there before, but he went on his way rejoicing. Well, here in the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah, and there it tells us in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes, and with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone his own way. You know, that's one thing about the fall. It had no respect to persons. Sheep and goats alike died. In Adam. In Adam, all died without respect to persons. But, here in the sixth verse of the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah, he said there's something about this group of people that Jesus went to the cross for, and they're called sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. What did that husband say? I will bear her iniquity. I will bear it. I'll be glad to. You know, that's the one thing about, well, there's many things about the Lord, but this, it just strikes me how glad he was to bear our iniquity on the cross. He had an everlasting love for these people. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were in such love with each other in a oneness that is hard for us to understand, and their will and purpose in the covenant of grace was all one, and when they loved with an everlasting love, the Son loved His people with an everlasting love, and He was just glad to bear their iniquity. It would be on purpose, but would accomplish exactly what He determined to do, and that was bear their iniquity. You know, the consequences of having Jesus Christ die for everybody on the face of the earth is way bad, way bad. But he bore the iniquity of his sheep. It goes on to tell us here, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb. He openeth not his mouth and drop down to verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul. He shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many? For he shall bear their iniquities. He became sin for us, but never became a sinner. He bore our iniquities. I'm so thankful as I read through this chapter of the book of Numbers that the father and the husband got involved in the foolish vow. It was so foolish what Adam did. And he was in the transgression. But this one 
the husband and the father says, I will bear their iniquity. And the last verse, going back there to the book of Numbers, chapter 30. Verse 15, But if he shall in any way make them void after that he hath heard them, then he shall bear her iniquity. And then, these are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife, between a father and her daughter, being yet in her youth and in her father's house. So, to have a father, to have a husband, that would bear our iniquities, set us free. I say yea and amen. Brother Mike.